Story Seven of The Man Without a Country and Other Tales by Edward Everett Hale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story Seven: The Last Voyage of the Resolute, Part Two. Lieutenant Pym had been appointed in the autumn to the Banksland search and had carried out his depots of provisions when the other officers took theirs captain mcclure's chart and dispatch made it no longer necessary to have that coast surveyed but made it all the more necessary to have some one go and see if he was still there the chances were against this as a whole summer had intervened since he was heard from lieutenant pym proposed however to travel all round banksland which is an island about the size and shape of ireland in search of him collinson franklin or anybody captain kellett however told him not to attempt this with his force but to return to the ship by the route he went first he was to go to the bay of mercy if the investigator was gone he was to follow any traces of her and if possible communicate with her or her consort the enterprise lieutenant pym started with a sledge and seven men and a dog sledge with two under dr domville the surgeon who was to bring back the earliest news from the bay of mercy to the captain there was a relief sledge to go part way and return for the intense cold of this early season they had even more careful arrangements than those we have described their tent was doubled they had extra mackintoshes and whatever else could be devised they had bad luck at starting broke down one sledge and had to send back for another had bad weather and must encamp once for three days fortunately says the lieutenant of this encampment the temperature arose from fifty one below zero to thirty six below and there remained while the drift accumulated to such a degree around the tents that within them the thermometer was only twenty below and when they cooked rose to zero a pleasant time of it they must have had there on the ice for those three days in their bags smoking and sleeping no wonder that on the fourth day they found they moved slowly so cramped and benumbed were they this morning a new sledge came to them from the ship they got out of their bags packed and got under way again they were still running along shore but soon sent back the relief party which had brought the new sled and in a few days more set out to cross the strait some twenty-five to thirty miles wide which when it is open as no man has ever seen it is one of the northwest passages discovered by these expeditions horrible work it was foggy and dark so they could not choose the road and as it happened lit on the very worst mass of broken ice in the channel just as they entered on it one black raven must needs appear bad luck said the men and when mr pym shot a musk-ox there first and the wounded creature got away so much for the raven they croaked again only three miles the first day four miles the second day two and a half the third and half a mile the fourth this was all they gained by most laborious hauling over the broken ice dragging one sledge at a time and sometimes carrying forward the stores separately and going back for the sledges two days more gave them eight miles more but on the seventh day on this narrow strait the dragging being a little better the great sledge slipped off a smooth hummock 
broke one runner to smash, and there they were. If the two officers had a little bit of a tiff out there on the ice, with the thermometer at eighteen below, only a little dog-sledge to get them anywhere, their ship a hundred miles off, fourteen days' travel as they had come, nobody ever knew it. They kept their secret from us. It is nobody's business, and it is not to be wondered at. Certainly they did not agree. The doctor, who sled the James Fitzjames was still sound, thought they had best leave the stores and all go back. But the lieutenant, who had the command, did not like to give it up. So he took the dogs and the James Fitzjames and its two men and went on, leaving the doctor on the floe, but giving him directions to go back to land with the wounded sledge and wait for him to return. And the doctor did it, like a spirited fellow, travelling back and forth for what he could not take in one journey, as the man did in the story who had a peck of corn, a goose, and a wolf to get across the river. Over ice, over hummock, the lieutenant went on his way with his dogs, not a bear, nor a seal, nor a hare, nor a wolf to feed them with. Preserved meats, which had been put up with dainty care for men and women, all he had for the ravenous, tasteless creatures who would have been more pleased with blubber, came to Banksland at last, but no game there. Awful drifts, shut up in the tent for a whole day, and he himself so sick he could scarcely stand. There were but three of them in all, and the captain of the sledge, not unnaturally, asked poor Pym, when he was at the worst, "'What shall I do, sir, if you die?' not a very comforting question he did not die he got a few hours sleep felt better and started again but had the discouragement of finding such tokens of an open strait the last year that he felt sure that the ship he was going to look for would be gone one morning he had been off for game for the dogs unsuccessfully and when he came back to his men learned that they had seen seventeen deer after them goes Pym, finds them to be three hares, magnified by fog and mirage, and their long ears answered for horns. This same day they got upon the Bay of Mercy. No ship in sight. Right across it goes the lieutenant to look for records. When, at two in the afternoon, Robert Hoyle sees something black up the bay. Through the glass the lieutenant makes it out to be a ship. They change their direction at once, over the ice towards her. He leaves the sledge at three and goes on. How far it seems! At four he can see people walking about, and a pile of stones and a flagstaff on the beach. Keep on, Pem. Shall one never get there? At five he is within a hundred yards of her, and no one has seen him. But just then the very persons see him who ought to. Pym beckons, waves his arms as the Eskimo do in a sign of friendship. Captain McClure and his Lieutenant Haswell are taking their exercise, the chief business of those winters, and at last see him. Pym is black as Erebus from the smoke of cooking in the little tent. McClure owns, not to surprise only, but to a twinge of dismay. I paused in my advance, says he, doubting who or what it could be, a denizen of this or the other world. But this only lasts a moment. 
Pym speaks. Brave man that he can! How his voice must have choked, as if he were in a dream. I am Lieutenant Pym, late of Harold. Captain Kellett is at Melville Island. Well-chosen words, Pym, to be sent in advance over the hundred yards of flow. Nothing about the resolute. That would have confused them. But Pym, Harold, and Kellett were among the last signs of England they had seen. All this was intelligible. An excellent little speech, which the brave man had been getting ready, perhaps, as one does a telegraphic dispatch for the hours that he had been walking over the flow to her. Then such shaking hands, such a greeting! Poor McClure could not speak at first. One of the men at work got the news on board, and up through the hatches poured everybody, sick and well, to see the black stranger and to hear his news from England. It was nearly three years since they had seen any civilized man but themselves. The 28th of July, three years before, Commander McClure had sent his last dispatch to the Admiralty. He had then prophesied just what in three years he had almost accomplished. In the winter of 1850 he had discovered the Northwest Passage. He had come round into one branch of it, Banks Straits, in the next summer, had gladly taken refuge on the Bay of Mercy in a gale, and his ship had never left it since. Let it be said, in passing, that most likely she is there now. In his last dispatches he had told the Admiralty not to be anxious about him if he did not arrive home before the autumn of 1854. As it proved, that autumn he did come with all his men, except those whom he had sent home before, and those who had died. When Pym found them, all the crew but thirty were under orders for marching, some to Baffin's Bay, some to the Mackenzie River, on their return to England. McClure was going to stay with the rest, and come home with the ship if they could, if not by sledges to Port Leopold, and so by a steam launch which he had seen left there for Franklin in 1849 but the arrival of Mr. Pym put an end to all these plans. We have his long dispatch to the Admiralty explaining them, finished only the day before Pym arrived. It gives the history of his three years' exile from the world, an exile crowded full of effective work, in a record which gives a noble picture of the man. The Queen has made him Sir Robert Le Mesurier McClure since in honour of his great discovery. Banksland, or Bering Island, the two names belong to the same island, on the shores of which McClure and his men had spent most of these two years or more, is an island on which they were the first of civilized men to land. For people who are not very particular, the measurement of it, which we gave before, namely that it is about the size and shape of Ireland, is precise enough. There is high land in the interior, probably, as the winds from inshore are cold. The crew found coal and dwarf willow which they could burn, lemmings, ptarmigan, hares, reindeer, and musk-oxen which they could eat. Farewell to the land where I often have wended, my way o'er its mountains and valleys of snow. Farewell to the rocks and the hills I've ascended, the bleak arctic homes of the buck and the doe. 
Farewell to the deep glens where oft has resounded The snow-bunting's song as she carolled her lay, To hillside and plain, by the green sorrel bounded, Till struck by the blast of a cold winter's day. There is a bit of description of Banks' land from the anthology of that country, which, so far as we know, consists of two poems by a seaman named Nelson, one of Captain McClure's crew. The highest temperature ever observed on this gem of the sea was 53 degrees in midsummer. The lowest was 65 degrees below zero in January 1853. That day the thermometer did not rise to 60 below. That month was never warmer than 16 degrees below, and the average of the month was 43 degrees below. A pleasant climate to spend three years in. One day for talk was all that could be allowed, after Mr. Pym's amazing appearance. On the 8th of April, he and his dogs and Captain McClure and a party were ready to return to our friend the Resolute. They picked up Dr. Domville on the way. He had got the broken sledge mended, and killed five musk-oxen against they came along. He went on in the dog-sledge to tell the news, but McClure and his men kept pace with them, and he and Dr. Domville had the telling of the news together. It was decided that the investigator should be abandoned, and the intrepid and resolute made room for her men. Glad greetings they gave them, too, as British seamen can give. More than half the crews were away when the investigators' parties came in, but by July everybody had returned. They had found islands where the charts had guessed there was sea, and sea where they had guessed there was land, had changed peninsulas into islands and islands into peninsulas. Away off beyond the 78th parallel, Mr. McClintock had christened the farthest dot of land Ireland's Eye, as if his native island were peering off into the unknown there. A great island, which will be our farthest now, four years to come, had been named Prince Patrick's Land, in honour of the baby prince, who was the youngest when they left home. Will he not be tempted, when he is a man, to take a crew, like another Madoc, and as younger sons of queens should, go and settle upon this tempting godchild. They had heard from Sir Edward Belcher's part of the squadron, they had heard from England, they had heard of everything but Sir John Franklin. They had even found an ale-bottle of Captain Collinson's expedition, but not a stick nor straw to show where Franklin or his men had lived or died. Two officers of the investigator were sent home to England this summer by a ship from Beachy Island, the headquarters, and thus we heard in October 1853 of the discovery of the Northwest Passage. After their crews were on board again, and the investigator's sixty stowed away also, the resolute and intrepid had a dreary summer of it. The ice would not break up. They had hunting parties on shore and races on the floe, but the captain could not send the investigators home as he wanted to in his steam-tender. All his plans were made, and made on a manly scale, if only the ice would open. He built a storehouse on the island for Collinson's people, or for you, reader, and us, if we should happen there, and stored it well, and left this record. This is a house which I have named the Sailor's Home, 
under the especial patronage of my lord's commissioners of the admiralty here royal sailors and marines are fed clothed and receive double pay for inhabiting it in that house is a little of everything and a good deal of victuals and drink but nobody has been there since the last of the resolute's men came away at last the seventeenth of august a day of foot-racing and jumping in bags and wrestling all hands present as at a sort of isthmian games ended with a gale a cracking up of ice and the investigators thought they were on their way home and kellett thought he was to have a month of summer yet but no there is nothing certain in this navigation from one hour to the next the resolute and intrepid were never really free of ice all that autumn drove and drifted to and fro in barrow straits till the twelfth of november and then froze up without anchoring off cape cockburn perhaps one hundred and forty miles from their harbour of the last winter the log-book of that winter is a curious record the ingenuity of the officer in charge was well tasked to make one day differ from another each day has the first entry for ship's position thus in the flow off cape cockburn and the blank for the second entry thus in the same position lectures theatricals schools and so forth whiled away the time but there could be no autumn travelling parties and not much hope for discovery in the summer spring came the captain went over ice in his little dog-sled to beachy island and received his directions to abandon his ships it appears that he would rather have sent most of his men forward and with a small crew brought the resolute home that autumn or the next but sir edward belcher considered his orders peremptory that the safety of the crews must preclude any idea of extricating the ships both ships were to be abandoned two distant travelling parties were away one at the investigator one looking for traces of collinson which they found word was left for them at a proper point not to seek the ship again but to come on to beachy island and at last having fitted the intrepid's engines so that she could be under steam in two hours having stored both ships with equal proportions of provisions and made both vessels ready for occupation the captain caulked down the hatches and with all the crew he had not sent on before forty-two persons in all left her monday the fifteenth of may eighteen fifty four and started with the sledges for beachy island poor old resolute all this gay company is gone who have made her sides split with their laughter here is harlequin's dress lying in one of the wardrooms but there is nobody to dance harlequin's dance here is a lovely clear day surely to-day they will come on deck and take a meridian no nobody comes the sun grows hot on the decks but it is all one nobody looks at the thermometer and so the poor ship was left all alone such gay times she has had with all these brave young men on board such merry winters such a lightsome summer so much fun so much nonsense so much science and wisdom and now it is all so still is the poor resolute conscious of the change does she miss the races on the ice 
the scientific lecture every Tuesday, the occasional racket and bustle of the theatre, and the worship of every Sunday. Has not she shared the hope of Captain Kellett, of McClure, and of the crew, that she may break out well? She sees the last sledge leave her. The captain drives off his six dogs, vanishes over the ice, and they are all gone. "'Will they not come back again?' says the poor ship, and she looks wistfully across the ice to her little friend, the steam-tender, Intrepid, and she sees there is no one there. "'Intrepid! Intrepid! Have they really deserted us? We have served them so well, and have they really left us alone? A great many were away travelling last year, but they came home. Will not any of these come home now?' no poor resolute not one of them ever came back again not one of them meant to summer came august came no one can tell how soon but some day or other this her icy prison broke up and the good ship found herself on her own element again shook herself proudly we cannot doubt nodded joyfully across to the intrepid and was free but alas there was no master to take latitude and longitude no helmsman at the wheel in clear letters cast in brass over her helm there are these words england expects each man to do his duty but here is no man to heed the warning and the rudder flaps this way and that way no longer directing her course but stupidly swinging to and fro and she drifts here and there drifts out of sight of her little consort strands on a bit of ice floe now and then is swept off from it and finds herself without even the intrepid's company alone on these blue seas with those white shores but what utter loneliness poor resolute she longed for freedom but what is freedom where there is no law what is freedom without a helmsman and the resolute looks back so sadly to the old days when she had a master and the short bright summer passes and again she sees the sun set from her decks and now even her topmasts see it set and now it does not rise to her deck and the next day it does not rise to her topmast winter and night together she has known them before but now it is winter and night and loneliness altogether. This horrid ice closes up round her again, and there is no one to bring her into harbour. She is out in the open sound. If the ice drifts west, she must go west. If it goes east, she must east. Her seeming freedom is over, and for that long winter she is chained again. But her heart is true to old England and when she can go east she is so happy and when she must go west she is so sad eastward she does go southward she does go true to the instinct which sends us all home she tracks undirected and without a sail fifteen hundred miles of that sea without a beacon which separates her from her own and so goes a dismal year Perhaps another spring they will come and find me out and fix things below. It is getting dreadfully damp down there, and I cannot keep the guns bright and the floors dry. No, good old Resolute, 
May and June pass off the next year, and nobody comes. And here you are all alone out in the bay, drifting in this dismal pack. July and August, the days are growing shorter again. Will nobody come and take care of me, and cut off these horrid blocks of ice, and see to these sides of bacon in the hold, and all these mouldy sails, and this powder, and the bread, and the spirit that I have kept for them so well? It is September, and the sun begins to set again. And here is another of those awful gales. Will it be my very last? All alone here, who have done so much, and if they would only take care of me, I can do so much more. Will nobody come? Nobody? What? Is it ice, Blink? Are my poor old lookouts blind? Is not there the intrepid? Dear intrepid? I will never look down on you again. No, there is no smokestack. It is not the intrepid, but it is somebody. Pray see me, good somebody. Are you a Yankee whaler? I am glad to see the Yankee whalers. I remember the Yankee whalers very pleasantly. We had a happy summer together once. It will be dreadful if they do not see me. But this ice, this wretched ice! They do see me. I know they see me but they cannot get to me. Do not go away, good Yankees. Pray come and help me. I know I can get out, if you will help a little, but now it is a whole week, and they do not come. Are there any Yankees, or am I getting crazy? I have heard them talk of crazy old ships in my young days. No, I am not crazy. They are coming. They are coming! Brave Yankees, over the hummocks, down into the sludge. Do not give it up for the cold. There is coal below, and we will have a fire in the Sylvester and in the captain's cabin. There is a horrid lane of water. They have not got a halket. Oh, if one of these boats of mine would only start for them, instead of lying so stupidly on my deck here. But the men are not afraid of water. See them ferry over on that ice-block. Come on, good friends. Welcome, whoever you be, Dane, Dutch, French, or Yankee. Come on, come on. It is coming up a gale, but I can bear a gale. Up the side, men. I wish I could let down the gangway alone. But here are all these blocks of ice piled up. You can scramble over them. Why do you stop? Do not be afraid. I will make you very comfortable and jolly. Do not stay talking there. Pray come in. There is port in the captain's cabin, and a little preserved meat in the pantry. You must be hungry. Pray come in. Oh, he is coming, and now all four are coming. It would be dreadful if they had gone back. They are on deck. Now I shall go home. How lonely it has been! It was true enough that when Mr. Quayle, the brother of the captain of the McClellan, whom the Resolute had befriended, the mate of the George Henry, whaler, whose master, Captain Buddington, had discovered the Resolute in the ice, came to her after a hard day's journey with his men, the men faltered with a little superstitious feeling, and hesitated for a minute about going on board. But the poor lonely ship wooed them too lovingly, and they climbed over the broken ice and came on deck. She was lying over on her larboard side, with a heavy weight of ice holding her down. 
hatches and companion were made fast as captain kellett had left them but knocking open the companion groping downstairs to the after cabin they found their way to the captain's table somebody put his hand on a box of lucifers struck a light and revealed books scattered in confusion a candle standing which he lighted at once the glasses and the decanters from which kellett and his officers had drunk good-bye to the vessel the whalemen filled them again and undoubtedly felt less discouraged meanwhile night came on and a gale rose so hard did it blow that for two days these four were the whole crew of the resolute and it was not until the nineteenth of september that they returned to their own ship and reported what their prize was all these ten days since captain buddington had first seen her the vessels had been nearing each other on the nineteenth he boarded her himself found that in her hold on the larboard side was a good deal of ice on the starboard side there seemed to be water in fact her tanks had burst from the extreme cold and she was full of water nearly to her lower deck everything that could move from its place had moved everything was wet everything that would mould was mouldy a sort of perspiration settled on the beams above clothes were wringing wet the captain's party made a fire in captain kellett's stove and soon started a sort of shower from the vapor with which it filled the air the resolute has however four fine force pumps for three days the captain and six men worked fourteen hours a day on one of these and had the pleasure of finding that they freed her of water that she was still tight they cut away upon the masses of ice and on the twenty third of september in the evening she freed herself from her encumbrances and took an even keel this was off the west shore of baffin bay in latitude sixty seven degrees on the shortest tack she was twelve hundred miles from where captain kellett left her there was work enough still to be done the rudder was to be shipped the rigging to be made taut sail to be set and it proved by the way that the sail on the yards was much of it still serviceable while a suit of new linen sails below were greatly injured by moisture in a week more they had her ready to make sail the pack of ice still drifted with both ships but on the twenty first of october after a long northwest gale the resolute was free more free than she had been for more than two years her last voyage is almost told captain buddington had resolved to bring her home he had picked ten men from the george henry leaving her fifteen and with a rough tracing of the american coast drawn on a sheet of foolscap with his lever watch and a quadrant for his instruments he squared off for new london a rough hard passage they had of it the ship's ballast was gone by the bursting of the tanks she was top-heavy and undermanned he spoke a british whaling bark and by her sent to captain kellett his epaulets and to his own owners news that he was coming they had heavy gales and head-winds were driven as far down as the bermudas the water left in the ship's tanks was brackish and it needed all the seasoning which the ship's chocolate would give to make it drinkable for sixty hours at a time says the spirited captain i frequently had no sleep but his perseverance was crowned with success at last 
and on the night of the 23rd, 24th of December, he made the light off the magnificent harbor from which he sailed, and on Sunday morning, the 24th, dropped anchor in the Thames opposite New London, ran up the Royal Ensign on the shorn masts of the Resolute, and the good people of the town knew that he and his were safe, and that one of the victories of peace was won. As the fine ship lies opposite the piers of that beautiful town, she attracts visitors from everywhere, and is indeed a very remarkable curiosity. Seals were at once placed, and very properly, on the captain's bookcases, lockers, and drawers, and wherever private property might be injured by wanton curiosity, and two keepers were on duty on the vessel till her destination is decided but nothing is changed from what she was when she came into harbour, and from stem to stern every detail of her equipment is a curiosity to the sailor or to the landsman. The candlestick in the cabin is not like a Yankee candlestick. The hawse-hole for the chain-cable is fitted as has not been seen before, and so of everything between. There is the aspect of wet over everything now, after months of ventilation, the rifles which were last fired at musk oxen in melville island are red with rust as if they had lain in the bottom of the sea the volume of shakespeare which you find in an officer's berth has a damp feel as if you had been reading it in the open air in a march nor'easter the old seamen look with most amazement perhaps on the preparations for amusement the juggler's cups and balls or harlequin spangled dress the quiet landsman wonders at the gigantic ice-saws, at the cast-off canvas boots, the long, thick arctic stockings. It seems almost wrong to go into Mr. Hamilton's wardroom and see how he arranged his soap-cup and his toothbrush, and one does not tell of it if he finds on a blank leaf the secret prayer a sister wrote down for the brother to whom she gave a prayer-book. There is a good deal of disorder now thanks to her sudden abandonment and perhaps to her three months voyage home a little union jack lies over a heap of unmended and unwashed underclothes when kellett left the ship he left his country's flag over his armchair as if to keep possession two officers swords and a pair of epaulettes were on the cabin table indeed what is there not there which should make an arctic winter endurable makes a long day into night, or while long days away. The ship is staunch and sound. The last voyage which we have described will not, let us hope, be the last voyage of her career. But wherever she goes, under the English flag or under our own, she will scarcely ever crowd more adventure into one cruise than into that which sealed the discovery of the Northwest Passage which gave new lands to England, nearest to the pole of all she has, which spent more than a year, no man knows where, self-governed and unguided, and which, having begun under the strict regime of the English navy, ended under the remarkable mutual rules adopted by common consent on the business of American whalemen. Is it not worth noting that in this chivalry of arctic adventure the ships which have been wrecked have been those of the fight or horror they are the fury the victory the erebus the terror but the ships which never failed their crews 
which for all that man knows are as sound now as ever bear the names of peaceful adventure the hecla the enterprise the investigator the assistance and resolute the pioneer and intrepid and our advance and rescue and arctic never threatened any one even in their names and they never failed the men who commanded them or who sailed in them end of story seven part two